The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. Previously on Carol's Last Christmas. I'm always looking for things that are coincidences because I don't believe in coincidences. Never. There was never any big crime in, 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 in normal Illinois. But there was now. 21-year-old Carol Rofstedt, working extra hours to buy Christmas presents, stops at a bar. We went down to the cellar, which is a, was a local bar, right on the same block that where we worked. Then walks half the way home with a girlfriend. We were looking for these guys that we had been, you know, kind of partying with over the weekend. And um, they weren't there. So we turned around and walked out and then uh, walked about a block and split up. When the next day when I was at work and, you know, we were both going to go home and pack for the train after work. And um, I went in to get her at lunch. He said she never showed up. If some guy bothered her, she knew how to put him off. Yeah, Christmas Eve. I was wrapping her Christmas present on the dining room table and the doorbell rang. It was the Elk Grove police. When something like that happens, it's like, wow. We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested, charged, or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Rofstedt. The normal police department declined to participate in this podcast. 222 in Central Illinois from WBNQ. In normal Illinois in the 70s, ground zero for good music was the Red Lion. The reason the Red Lion was here was because of ISU and Illinois West. It was a members-only club, and there were a lot of members. A minimum of 300 people a night, a maximum of five, 600. It was very, very, very popular. Denny Rogers knows a lot about the lion. I was the head bouncer. I tried to remain invisible, but I was like the key guy that uh, would watch the crowd for trouble. When he wasn't working the door, he was on call as one of the top criminal sketch artists in the region. I wound up doing uh, work for, of course, the FBI, the uh, Illinois State Police, the sheriffs, and city departments. Six days after Carol Rofsted was bludgeoned, a normal police called me. He made a meticulous drawing. The detail work in, in that sketch is remarkable. Based on an eyewitness account. I came in to meet the fellow. I was just intent on listening to what he said. A guy wearing a stocking cap with um, a relatively neat beard and hair down over his collar. He ended up with this sketch that was a bearded character. Kind of describe it for me as you recall. This guy uh, 
Oh, okay. I haven't yeah. looked at that in 30 years. I'll be darned. It might be. From Genuine Human Productions, this is Carol's Last Christmas. I'm a criminal, so despicable. Tell me I'm Chapter 3 Chasing Ghosts Every investigation starts with information. It starts with documents. Our reporting for this series is based on hours of interviews and phone calls and hundreds of pages of official documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. The Freedom of Information Act is the critical key that gets us the public records we're entitled to. I'm going to talk to you today about the Illinois Freedom of Information Act. In its seminars, the Better Government Association, a nonprofit watchdog in Illinois, educates the public on its right to know. This is expert attorney Matt Topic. The reality is that government will inherently want to operate in secret. It, it just will. People don't want to be, have someone looking over their shoulder. The police reports we eventually got are heavily redacted. That means names, addresses, and lots of key information is simply blacked out, like a page full of zebra stripes. During my talk with Blacked Out, I learned that a person named Blacked Out had made the statement at a party that he was the person that killed Carol. What you're left with is a puzzle with a lot of missing pieces. Challenging, but not impossible. Uh, down toward the bottom of the page. They did make one mistake uh, where, where they blacked out everything else. The guy that beat his wife for, uh, put her in the hospital for two months, they neglected to eradicate that his first name was Robert. So that's, that's a tiny little clue in itself. We can cross-check that. The earliest pages of the Rofsted case file contain a detail that would disappear as the investigation progressed. The possible evidence of a sexual attack. December 23, 1975, 11.59 a.m., responding to the call of a lady down the 600 block of South Fell Avenue. I arrived first, finding a girl unconscious in the grass at this location with three people around her. I had Frank put the girl who found the victim into his squad. The girl that had been molested was identified as Carol Rofsted, 602 South Fell Avenue. Molested. Why would the officer write that word? She was covered, but her panties and stockings were down to her knees. 
I asked Dr. Sands if the victim could possibly be checked for rape. This was requested because the victim's panties were pulled down. At this time, he informed me that due to the poor physical condition of the victim, the fact that she was wearing a tampon and that she had been catheterized, this would invalidate any of the tests that might be taken. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. In my mind's eye, Carol must have had her winter coat on. She was coming home from work. She stopped and had a drink at the bar. And um, why are you talking about her slip and her nylons? Was there something more that happened? Well, that I'm not aware of? well, she was found with her with her pantyhose down around her knees. I did not know that. Was she raped? Presented with little or no interruption, Carol's last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our work, please consider making a donation to help. Thanks for supporting Carol and our work. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's last Christmas. The victim arrived at the hospital at 12.05 and went directly into the emergency room. When asked if she believed Carol was raped, the nurse stated that she didn't think so because she was having her period and the Tampax was not out of place. I don't know what all they tough back then. This is one of Carol's sorority sisters. Because it was only like fingerprints at the time, but I'm thinking... The purse, they took out the wallet to see if the money was in there. They took her clothes off. Um, but if I heard her pantyhose at the time were pulled down, mm-hmm. it maybe looked like a rape. True or not. Um, one of my sorority sisters, I'm not 100% sure, but I think her father was a police officer at that time that worked on the case and we heard some things from her that weren't public. Police had told the newspaper and the public that Carol had been examined for rape. We know from the files that wasn't true. You know, he didn't sexually assault her or anything like that. It was... Well, uh, he might have. This retired financial advisor was a student back then. Well, that's yeah. what they, the, the article says, no, but maybe they, maybe he did. I don't know. It wasn't uncommon then to hush up rapes on campuses. Experts say they're still underreported by universities today. The case file shows a woman had been abducted from campus and raped less than two weeks before Carol died. Just kind of flat out said, nope, she wasn't sexually assaulted case closed on that front. This is Genuine Human co-producer Ali Daskalopoulos. Okay, sure, maybe. But in terms of DNA, I think there would have been tons of DNA that you could have recovered from that, especially if they never tested it for anything at all. I mean, I'm sure they wanted to spare the family, but if I was the family, I would want to know every detail. They kept saying there wasn't a lot to go on, and they threw out, you know, her hair and her stomach contents, and and um, 
now I realize that it was that they didn't perform the rape, um, the rape exam, you know, partially clothed and all that. I In mean, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was not robbery, which they kept telling us it had to be robbery. Thursday, April 10th. 2008. Normal police were locked into a lot of questionable narratives. Listen again to the only police recording released to us, a 2008 status meeting with the Rofsted family. Remember, that's 33 years after the crime. Now, do you have good evidence that there was two people from the eyewitness? One of the people that I want to talk to is the eyewitness. December 29th, 1975. Detective Sadler advised he had a potential witness to the murder. He left Springfield, Illinois between 8.30 and 8.45, heading toward Normal. When he got into town, he proceeded north on Clinton Boulevard up to Fell. When he got to 602 South Fell, he observed a dark-colored car parked in the front of 602. He had to swing around this car As he did, he glanced to his right and observed two white males and a white female in the yard. One of the white males was tall, approximately 6'2", 200 pounds, with a beard that was two inches long. He was wearing a dark brown stocking cap and full-length army-type overcoat. The other white male was shorter than the girl and had his arms outstretched as if he was blocking the female from walking by him. The female was described as having long, light brown hair and was staggering with her head down and slightly bent over. The the guy that we talked to was like passing and was not long. He knew something was up. And I don't think he saw the actual hit. I think what happened was he was the one that saw people up there at the top of the hill. Is he living in America? I haven't looked it up yet. I haven't got. He was a foreign exchange student or something. Artist Denny Rogers. I came in to meet the fellow. Now the fellow, I had this distinct feeling that he was from another country, but I could have been wrong because he had something of an accent and he he had the appearance of uh, skin tone, I'll put it that way, of somebody from, you know, another country. I, I couldn't identify, you know, what he was. I I was just intent on listening to what he said. Mm-hmm. There were two different composite sketches done in conjunction with this. Again, retired Chicago detective George Seibel. And one one was probably discarded in favor of the other. Blank gave us a composite of the large male subject with the help of Detective Linsky from the Bloomington Police Department to provide a profile sketch of the larger male subject. After this, Denny Rogers, an artist in Normal, was contacted and he came to the Normal Police Department where he made a life drawing of this subject. You signed your composite sketch in this particular case. Did you always do that? Uh, I did for a reason. 
And the reason was so that other cops could find me. In the initial descriptions, they're saying that the witness, the East Indian guy perhaps, um, noticed the eye color. Do you think that's crazy in the middle of the night? Well, perhaps he saw that guy at a tavern they had been coming from. Why did you get so accurate on this? I don't know. That never came out. I don't know. Someone told me that the sketch, the, you the know, composite sketch. composite sketch looked the most like the person they thought did it. Let me ask you about green eyes in the, in the night. It's absurd. Cop made it up. They had decided that they thought they knew who did it. They had met him and they knew he had green eyes. And so then they showed, they showed him a, a, a composite sketch or he made a composite sketch and the Indian guy or whatever he was thought that the guy looked something like that. And so the cop said, mm -hmm, green eyes. I'm sorry. I have green eyes and it's light out and you're six feet away from me and you don't know it. Presented with little to no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you enjoy our work, please consider making a donation to help. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. At the tone, please record your message. If and when uh, you get a chance, you can give me a call back. I'll figure out some stuff that we, we wondered about. The first of those two composite sketches in the Rofsted case has never been seen again. I did get a hold of the guy that made the original. Oh my gosh, the original it, artist, you mean? The, the original one. Yeah. The, the, the one we've never seen, that no one's ever seen. I said, you remember the Carol Rofsted case? And he said, yeah, I sure do. And he's 76 now. And uh, I said, well, I've got a report here that says that, uh, that Denny Rogers did the uh, composite sketch that, that was actually used officially and was disseminated by the police department. But there's five, five or six different police reports that make reference to the fact that you did one before that. Mm -hmm. so, so I said, well, who the hell was the witness to that? And he said, you know, he said, I, I'd be lying if I said I remember anything about that. He did do some kind of composite on that case, but he has no idea anything more about it. Okay, just, just put on your police hat. Why would you want two sketches? Because the first one didn't come out right. 
they tried created a sketch of somebody, and and it didn't suit their needs, so they had themselves a suspect, and they got this guy Lindsay to do a drawing. They got another lead, and they apparently didn't want to follow up because it would have taken work to follow up on the on the guy that was drawn in the first sketch. Mm-hmm. It can't be anything else. Sketch number one may be gone, but what has endured is that detailed drawing of a bearded man in a knit cap, described by someone police call an eyewitness. Has anybody else interviewed him besides you? Me specifically, or you mean the police department? Yeah. He was interviewed for the sketch. Once? I don't know exactly how many times he was interviewed. That is someone else that I want to talk to. 33 years would go by before anyone else talked to that alleged eyewitness. And only then, because an old cop in a Chicago college class had come knocking. George is relentless. I mean, he he will sit down and read through a case file line by line, and he will look at every article, every picture. I mean, he's extremely thorough. One of the things that he'll tell you is that you don't necessarily have to be the best detective. You just have to read. Okay, so here here's the deal. When I was down there talking to these people that hated me in 2008, they did tell me that the, uh, that the their witness that gave them the description of two guys standing over a woman with, with a stick or a piece of wood was an Eastern Indian guy. Right. Your storyline was that he was new in the United States. He was driving back from Springfield, and he saw this thing occur. In late June of 2008, normal detectives traveled down to Florida and met with the alleged eyewitness. Thank you for calling the law offices of Jerry Berry. You have reached us during... The witness had hired a lawyer and was granted use immunity from prosecution. I've never known of a legitimate police witness uh, who felt that they needed to retain counsel and have a meeting with the police in, in a lawyer's office. Uh, the interview was audio and video recorded with all uh, parties consent. He did not recall seeing any sketch by Detective Tim Linsky who was mentioned in the original report. He said he did not recall the police ever taking him back to the scene to clarify where he saw them. I showed him a photo I had taken of 602 South Fell, the building where the crime occurred. He said that he did not recognize that building as where he had seen the three people. He, he, didn't, he, ne- he never could say that. He said, well, it might have been here, and it might have been there, and it might have, it might have been elsewhere. After they left Naples, Florida, and they had nothing, but to the cops' credit, they went out and did a rolling vehicle uh, filming of Fell Street and surrounding areas. And so he makes a reference and says, 
my client so-and-so did not recognize the house with the pillars and that would be uh, I confirmed that the sorority house had pillars and then it said as they were rolling along they were going from smaller numbers to larger numbers apparently and he said that the uh, the place where all this happened looked more like the building at 505 south rather than the sorority house there's no reason to tie any two guys tall and short with uh, with beards with the killer in the case the killer could be any person who was alive on that day in that city. The record is clear. Both current and former normal police officers have admitted the sketch is unreliable. And they've known that since 2008. The Rothstead family is frustrated. A lot of people will get missed if they think there's two two men when maybe it was one man or two men, whatever, who didn't look like that. And to have it up for all those years, and we, we didn't think it was helpful. We said, you know, can you take that down? And they, and they went on for 13 more years. And if you go, I checked the website today. It's a picture of the composite sketch of, of the one guy who's still on the website. Yep. 13 years later. So we have a sketch that looks remarkably similar to someone, but the person providing the description has a totally unreliable memory. Is this helping or harming the investigation? How bad would it be to have lost your child? She died on Christmas Eve, I believe. Mm-hmm. It would, it would just ruin the rest of your life. This case is nearly 50 years old. In some ways, that's colder than ice. But decades without adequate review has only made it worse. An alleged eyewitness never taken back to the scene. If the witness was wrong about that, then they've been, they chase ghosts the whole time. And what about the person who discovered Carol's body? It took them 16 years to interview that person. Oh, I'm sorry. You've got to be kidding me. Misleading public dismissal of this being a sexual crime. I did not know that. Why did I not know that? And that's just the beginning. From the start, we've requested the help of normal police. An internal email says it all. Has a George Seibel from a possible company called Genuine Human Productions contacted you? This company wants to do a podcast on her murder. We are not working with anybody on this. I won't be answering any questions about this case. NPD is not working with this guy. What's a podcast anyway? Next time on Carol's Last Christmas. It, it was tragic, but it was laughable that somebody gave a murder weapon away to a college instructor and the guy had it hanging in his freaking office. We're not going to have a trophy hanging on the wall. 
Was it a baseball bat? Was it a was it a four by four? Was it a two by two? Two Polaroids of exhibit number four before and after original package removed. Mm-hmm. And like exhibit number four is the piece of wood with red stuff on it. With uh, instant news the way it is and everything, there would be uh, two million likes by this time tomorrow if we posted that evidence today. And I believe everything you hear. Oh, I'm worse than the shame I do. A beautiful nightmare, the usual fanfare. Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead Investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer, Alexandra Daskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator, Demetria Kaladinos. Voiceover recreation, Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kalademos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kalademos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review, and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories.